Welcome to the Best of Making Sense. This is Sam Harris. In this series, we re-air some of the most popular episodes of the Making Sense podcast. These are conversations that we think you'll find just as relevant today as when they were originally released. Today, I'm speaking with Barry Weiss about her new book, How to Fight Anti-Semitism. Barry and I cover a fair amount of ground here. We talk about the different strands of anti-Semitism, right-wing, left-wing, and Islamic. Uh, we talk about the difference between anti-Semitism and other forms of racism, which was a point that only became clear to me in reading Barry's book. We talk about the so-called Great Replacement Theory among white supremacists, the populist response to globalization, the history of anti-Semitism in the U.S., its theological roots, criticisms of Israel, and other topics. Now, without further delay, I bring you Barry Weiss. I am here with Barry Weiss. Barry, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Sam. So uh, you have written a book that's not going to be controversial at all. Uh, <laughs> this, is, uh, this has to be fun for you. I know you're, this is already out and launched. The book is How to Fight Anti-Semitism, and uh, it is a great and bracing read. It's a, it's a short book. This is one of these books that you really can start and finish with confidence, which is nice. We want to talk about this in great depth, the, the topic of anti-Semitism. But before we do, I just want to get some context for you and your work as a journalist and, and as an opinion person. How would you describe your politics and your career thus far as a journalist? Well, if you Google me, you'll, you'll get one answer, which is that I'm apparently extremely controversial. My answer is that I'm, I'm fairly boring. I am very socially liberal. I'm sort of hawkish on foreign policy. I consider myself left of center. But I think, like many people who are similarly positioned, we're a bit politically homeless at the moment. So we sort of don't fit into either of the increasingly extreme tribes and, and therefore are sort of seized upon and pilloried by both of them. You know, just for some background, I spent six or seven years at the Wall Street Journal in two stints, first as an op-ed editor on the editorial page and then as a book review editor, both of which were under the umbrella of the editorial page, which is, of course, famously, I would say, free market conservative place. And I was always the most left-wing person in that milieu. Then I moved after Trump became the candidate and I didn't want to be a part of an editorial page that was in some way apologizing for or kind of quietly supporting him or covering for him, I left along with many people, including Brett Stevens. And I went from being sort of the most left-wing person at the journal's editorial page to one of the most, I guess, right-wing people at the New York Times. So that sort of, I think, concisely sums it up yeah. a little bit. Yeah. So needless to say, you are uh, often maligned as a Nazi or Nazi adjacent. Uh, and I know the feeling. And uh, we perhaps we'll get into that, but let's talk about the genesis of the book because I, I believe you began writing this book after the the synagogue atrocity in Pittsburgh, which landed all too close to home. Perhaps summarize what happened there for for those who have forgotten. Right, there have been so many since then. 
On the morning of October 27th, 2018, a white supremacist walked into Tree of Life Synagogue in Squirrel Hill, which is the neighborhood of Pittsburgh, where I was raised. Tree of Life was the synagogue where I became a bat mitzvah. And he he walked in, he shouted that all Jews must die. And then he murdered 11 people there on a Shabbat Saturday morning. I was in Arizona at the time. I got a text from my youngest sister on our family chat. And she simply said, you know, there's a shooter at Tree of Life. I immediately thought of my dad, who often goes to synagogue at one of the different services that meets there on Saturday morning. There are three communities that meet in that building. And I immediately typed back, is is dad? I didn't even finish the question. Thank God he wasn't there. He was still at home with my mom. But my mom wrote back, you know, we're going to know a lot of people there. And my dad knew six or seven of the people that were killed. I knew two. I was supposed to fly to Israel, of all places, the following day to do a reporting trip on a very famous archaeological dig in, in Jerusalem called the City of David. I put off the trip. I went home for the week, and I just sort of immersed myself in what happens to a community and a community you know so well in the aftermath of something like this, and wrote several columns. I was on Bill Maher that Friday night, and I actually was under contract to write a different book, one that I'm still on the hook for, sort of about our culture wars, but found myself just drawn back again and again to this topic and just sort of seeing it everywhere I looked. And so I sort of went hat in hand to my publisher and asked if I could do this quickly first, and if we could get it out before the the Jewish high holidays, which somehow we managed to do. Hmm. Well, you do a few very useful things in the book, and, and one of which is to differentiate the three poles of anti-Semitism, the right wing, the left wing, and the Islamic. I think we'll find as we speak about these things that the latter two interact in ways that are so cynical and, and sinister on the Islamic side and so phantasmagorically stupid and masochistic on the left wing side that, I mean, honestly, it's, it's very hard to understand how that alliance is even possible. But when we talk about this, I think the left wing and the Islamist problem will become sort of braided. You also make a point which I hadn't really seen made before, which is that one of the reasons why the the Jews are so often attacked from the left and the right and elsewhere is that on the right, they are considered non-white or insufficiently white and yet able to pass for white in this kind of sinister way. And on the left, if anything, they are extra white. I mean, they somehow have extra privilege and the least points in the in the intersectionality Olympics. Perhaps we should we should start with the right wing side because that's sort of the cleanest to talk about. And this obviously is most relevant to the, to what happened in Pittsburgh. Did I describe the way you differentiate these things accurately? Yeah, I had written a column. There was a survey or a study that came out that was very shocking last year about the prevalence of anti-Semitism in Europe from, I believe CNN did it. And I, I wrote a column laying out this, what I described at the time as sort of a three-headed dragon. I use that same structure in the book, but frankly, you know, if I'm honest, I had hoped to avoid the chapter on Islam for all of the reasons that I think we'll get into, but are probably already obvious to anyone who listens to your show and sees the way that 
your ideas get talked about, that it's a very scary topic to write about. And I had honestly hoped to avoid it and then realized that it would be the most intellectually dishonest thing to write a book about anti-Semitism and not talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's start with the cleanest case, which is the the extreme right. And you make a point in the book that I, I really had never considered, and it explains a lot, which is that anti-Semitism really is not just another flavor of racism on the right. You know, I won't put the words in your mouth, but how, how is the white supremacist hatred of Jews different from their hatred of other groups? So and there's an anti-racist activist called Eric Ward who runs the Western States Center. Um, and his essay, which is called Skin in the Game, I really recommend it to people, was illuminating to me and, and helped inform my thinking on this. So what he says is that when I heard, and maybe you're similar, when I saw the marchers in Charlottesville shouting, Jews will not replace us, I heard that originally in a very straightforward way. I heard it as, the Jew is not going to take my place in the corner office. A Jew is not going to take my status in society, something along those lines. But I realized in reading Eric Ward's work and others that that's not what they were saying at all. What they were suggesting is that Jews in a way, and this is Eric Ward's language, they're in a way the greatest trick the devil has ever played. And the reason for that is because, at least in America, this is not true in Israel, where the majority of Jews are of Mizrahi descent, so they're of North African and Middle Eastern descent. In America, the majority of Jews are of Eastern European or Ashkenazi descent. 15% of American Jews are Jews of color, by the most liberal estimate. So we mm. appear to be white, and we can pass as white. And so we trick real white people into thinking that we're like them. But in fact, we're loyal to black people and brown people and immigrants and Muslims. And if you go and you read, you know, you could see them as deranged or you could see it as a kind of, you know, a conspiracy theory. When you read the social media postings of the killer in Pittsburgh, right? The reason that he chose Tree of Life as the synagogue is that the previous weekend, the previous Shabbat, Tree of Life had participated in what was called National Refugee Shabbat in which dozens of synagogues around the country came together to say, we are safe spaces. I hate that language, but we are, we are places that are open to the stranger. And the reason that we are is that one of the core Jewish values is the idea that we should never oppress a stranger because we know what it was to be strangers in the land of Egypt. And that whole initiative was put together by a very, very admirable, righteous organization called HIAS, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, founded in the 1880s to help settle Jews fleeing Eastern European pogroms and now helps Jewish refugees, but all kinds of refugees and immigrants around the world. And he said in his, in his social media postings, and there's lots of expletives, but something along the lines of, you know, screw your optics, I'm going in, these people are bringing in you know, they're sullying the country by helping bringing in the, quote, dirty Muslims. So that is the logic behind it. So Jews are kind of the linchpin, in a way, of white supremacist thinking, because we're the kind of shadow force being the handmaidens of the people that white supremacists see as sullying white Christian America, if that makes sense. Well, unfortunately, there, there's very often a kernel of truth 
embedded in these conspiracy theories. And, and the kernel of truth here is that, of course, Jews have historically had a very positive attitude towards civil rights and been very supportive of civil rights in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And through hard experience, learned the consequences of being the victims of jingoistic immigration restrictions. I mean, the, the most probably shocking case is what happened in 1939 with the SS St. Louis. This was a ship that was carrying over 900 Jews who were seeking to escape the Holocaust, and it was denied entry in the U.S. It was also denied entry in Cuba and Canada and wound up having to return to Europe where many of these Jews ended up in Auschwitz. Experiences like that that would explain, you know, apart from just basic human decency around the general problem of of refugees, that would explain a positive orientation toward immigration that if you're a white supremacist, you would revile. So we could sort of run to the same thing here on the right with the association between Jews and socialism and communism. There have been, you know, very prominent Jews who uh, were supportive of those political movements, and it's kind of a, a perfect storm of populism and isolationism and conspiracy thinking, you know, that's been fed for more than a century with you know notions of born of fake literature like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and you know it's, it culminates now in what you referred to as the Great Replacement Theory, which mm-hmm. perhaps you want to summarize. The right is organized around a kind of an anti-globalist inward turn into nationalism and jingoism and isolationism, and Jews are on the wrong side of that divide. Right. And that's a problem like that setup, you know, leaving out the internet and, and all kinds of other new phenomenon. But that is familiar to us, which is one of the reasons that I think right-wing anti-Semitism is easier to grasp because we only need to look at you know our grandparents' generation in Europe and what they experienced to understand it. It's like it's I think it's in our bones in a way. And I would also just mm. just th- speaking of the St. Louis, I don't usually recommend anything on Twitter, but there's this really beautiful, moving Twitter account called St. Louis Manifest that actually just tweets out the bios of of everyone that was on that ship that I follow that's just really moving. Mm. And there's photographs and Mm. people want to know more about it. So remind me, what what is the Great Replacement Theory? The Great Replacement Theory is, there's a great essay that Thomas Chatterton Williams wrote about it, but it's it's really this basic idea summarized by Steve King, which is you can't replace our civilization, as he put it, with someone else's babies. This to me is a deeply anti-American idea because the ideal of this country is the idea that our civilization is open to anyone who wants to adhere to the ideas of it. It has nothing to do with Mm. bloodline. It has everything to do with fealty to a certain set of beliefs. And this whole notion of sort of like blood and soil nationalism that you increasingly see on the right and that is at the heart of great replacement theory, which is that civilization or culture is somehow something that is passed down in the blood and not something that's passed down through culture and ideas and beliefs is just 
to me, deeply anti-American. And anyway, that's the idea of it. Yeah, well, and it's mirrored on the left with this notion that identity, you know, racial identity in particular is morally and politically paramount as though, and, and anything you would say against, let's say, Islam on the left will be immediately conflated with, with an attack on people for the color of their skin or the, the origin of their birth, whereas it's always, certainly in the context of a conversation like this, a criticism of ideas and their consequences, right? If, if I'm going to criticize neo-Nazis, I'm not criticizing white people, I'm criticizing terrible ideas. And when I'm criticizing Islamism or jihadism, I'm not criticizing Arabs or any other ethnicity. I'm criticizing the consequences of ideas. Yes. And the fact that that it's, it's so that the people can't track this is continues to be bewildering. Yeah. Well, part of it is that they can track it, and they're deciding not to. Yeah. Let's take a moment to just remind people a little bit more about the history of anti-Semitism in the U.S. because it reaches further back than. I think most people realize. So let's just briefly talk about the 1930s and mm -hmm. what you do in the book. Well, so you know, it's amazing to me that most people my age have never heard of the name Charles Coughlin. But that's a name that, if you're at all involved in the Jewish community, that is very, very familiar. He was the radio host, sort of the Rush Limbaugh of his day, I guess. Different, but very, very popular in the same way, much more popular. I think something like 30 million Americans listen to him every week. He is someone, he was a priest who's based in Michigan. He got so many letters that the town he was from actually had to build a new post office to keep up with the amount of mail he received. He was just hugely, hugely popular. And this was something who, you know, told 30 million Americans that the Jews deserved Kristallnacht. He talked about the Jews as modern Shylocks who have grown fat and wealthy. I mean, these are some of the most sort of old, vile, anti-Semitic tropes, and you could hear them on the radio in America in the 1930s. You know, Henry Ford, people think of Henry Ford as the automaker, which of course he was, but he had a, Hitler shouted him out in Mein Kampf. He was awarded this thing called the Grand Cross of the German Eagle, which was the highest honor the Nazis gave. And I think, you know, there was a short film made about this next thing I'll tell you, which is I really recommend to people. It's six or seven minutes. And you can watch, you know, in 1939, 20,000 people showed up at Madison Square Garden to raise their arms to Heil Hitler and stood beneath signs saying, you know, smash Jewish communism and stop the Jewish domination of Christian Americans. So that all happened here. And yet still, and this is the thing that I find fascinating, I was still very much, and I don't know about you, Sam, raised on the idea that America was uniquely inoculated from the virus of anti-Semitism that was just much more natural, or so I was taught in places like France and Germany and England. Yeah, yeah. It actually wasn't until I read the book, The Abandonment of the Jews by David Wyman, which I think came out in the mid-80s, that I understood just how touch-and-go the history is here. I mean, you, you literally had congressmen giving anti-Semitic speeches on the floor of Congress while the Holocaust was raging and we understood the shape of it. I mean, it's just, it's mind-boggling that the, the history was what it was. And 
you know, you could add Charles Lindbergh to the to the list of prominent figures who who got singled out for uh, Nazi accolades. And Charles Conklin was was a Catholic priest, so he links up with a larger trend of Catholic fascism or fondness for fascism and you know explicit anti-Semitism. And all of this, of course, is cashed out in Christian theology and and I mean both Catholic and Protestant theology. I mean, they, you know, the Protestants are hardly better. I mean, once Martin Luther got an audience, he started you know raging against the Jews, really a, a explicitly eliminationist vein. And you cite some of this in your book that the New Testament has several verses that that seem to justify anti-Semitism outright. Yeah, I mean, the most famous of which is, you know, I think it's in the book of Matthew, his blood be on us and, and on our children, you know, which was used to justify, you know, untold amounts of violence. It's such, it's such a historically bloody line that even Mel Gibson, who right now is making a movie called The Rothschilds, and I'm not kidding, even he in, in um, uh-huh. Passion of the Christ, which was an Aramaic, didn't translate the verse into English because that's, you know, that's how controversial it's been. But of course, there was Vatican II, and I don't want to undo the amount of progress that's happened because, of course, it has. Yes, but again, the, the progress has to grapple with the fact that obviously there's an incoherence here because there are anti-Semitic lines in the Bible and, uh, you know, 2,000 years of theologically mandated anti-Semitism resulted, and yet Jesus and the Twelve Apostles and the Virgin Mary were all Jews. How there could have been such a durable basis for Jew hatred is a little hard to square, except for the fact that it really was a kind of internecine schism in the religion. You have Jews who were, in order to maintain their Judaism, had to explicitly reject the Messiah status of Jesus. And that's, you know, that is the founding sin that really is unforgivable if you're a dogmatic Christian. Yeah. The other thing that just thinks, just going back a bit to, to American history pieces, after Pittsburgh, you know, there was a lot of talk about how there had never been an attack on, on, a, on a synagogue. Actually, there had never been that many people killed in a synagogue. That was true. And it was by far the most violent attack against Jews in American history, also true. But there had been, and, and this is one of the things I was shocked to find out, a lot of attacks on synagogues, right. a lot. You know, and I, I sort of go through them in the book, and I, the ones that stick out to me the most were these sort of spate of attacks specifically targeting civil rights supporting rabbis in the South, in Mississippi, and in Atlanta specifically. And one of, one of the occasions, they actually went and, I believe, bombed the house of the rabbi. And, and that was news to me. I had not grown up learning about that at all. Yeah, yeah. There's an ambient level of anti-Semitic hate crime in the U.S., and there has always been. And I, I've always been somebody who, as a Jew, have minimized its significance. I mean, it's, it's always felt to me that, that anti-Semitism is not a major problem in the U.S., and and even I mean, as shocking as you know the murder of dozens of people in any given year is, we're not talking about you know nine eleven scale terroristic atrocities against Jews in general. 
obviously it could get a lot worse, but the thing to point out is that all of the people who complain about hate crimes against other groups, you know, in particular Muslims in the U.S., have been complaining about a level of hate which has always been less than the level of hate crime against Jews. I mean, any given year, if you look at FBI statistics yeah. and you look for hate crimes against mosques and, and Muslims, it's always less than hate, the, the number of hate crimes against Jews and synagogues. And these are mostly property crimes in, in most cases. And again, I, you know, I, don't, I don't mean to minimize it for the people who suffer directly, but in a, in a country of you know, 330 million people, the numbers are, are not that high. But it's generally ignored by, I mean, we just, we have to make apples to apples comparisons here. If you're going to derange our politics over how awful it's been getting for Muslims in, in the United States, mm-hmm. it would be only decent to notice that the numbers for, of the same sorts of insults and crimes against Jews has for every year since 9-11 been, you know, 5x worse. And that's just routinely ignored on the left. So the, so the left wing has its own problem with anti-Semitism and the disregard of anti-Semitism. Well, I guess let's, for those who, I'm sure most people are familiar with the term, but let's define the concept of intersectionality before we wade into this morass. Okay, so intersectionality was this idea that was coined or like really a framework for thinking about discrimination and oppression. And it was coined by this woman named Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989. And it was, she based it on this very interesting case, which took place at General Motors, in which five Black women sued GM for hiring discrimination. And at the time that they sued, GM had jobs for black men on the factory floor, and it had jobs for white women as secretaries. And this meant that these black women, these five black women, couldn't be, they weren't acceptable in either job. For one job, they were too female. For another, they were too black. And so they kind of fell through the cracks because of these intersecting discriminations. So that idea in and of itself is very sound. And the idea that, you know, some people can sort of be doubly blessed while some people can be doubly compromised, that again, great idea. The problem is, is that in reality, intersectionality functions as a kind of caste system. And what I mean by that is, if you think about like Western civilization up until, you know, five minutes ago, the caste system was clear. If you're a white, able-bodied, tall man that looks like, you know, John Hamm, you're at the top of the food chain and go down the line. The more disabled you are or female you are or gay or, you know, go down the line, the lower you are in the food chain. What intersectionality does is it reverses that caste system. It says that the, the John Hams of the world are at the bottom and the people at the top are people that are transgender, people that are queer, people that are disabled, people that, you know, and I can go on and on and on. And the more claim to victimhood you have, the higher you are in that caste system. Mm. Now, the, the place where it gets even worse and more damaging is the idea that the more claim you have to victimhood, in fact, the more claim you have to truth and morality. 
the more standing you have to even comment on topics. And this to me is, you know, as anti-American as the idea that, you know, that to have a certain skin color makes you more or less American. The idea that you are sort of condemned to the lane of your class or your station or even your religion, or that having a certain skin color means that you need to ascribe to a certain set of ideas, that to me is is incompatible, frankly, with liberal democracy. And it is an idea that has taken tremendous hold over the political left. And increasingly, you see it seeping into the mainstream of the Democratic Party. So I have a fairly paradoxical position on Israel, and it's, it's difficult to summarize. I once... I think I know it. I wrote it. I read it. I recently reread it. Uh, yeah, I once released a podcast titled, I believe, Why Don't I Ever Criticize Israel? Question mark. And the title was read as a claim that I never criticize Israel. It's one of the most poorly titled pieces I've ever put out. And so I got just an, a tsunami of hatred for never criticizing Israel, even though in the first sentences of the podcast, I made it clear that I do criticize Israel and I criticize Judaism. And my support for Israel is, in one sense, unequivocal, and in another sense, non-existent, depending on what part of the conversation we're in. But let's get there. Just give me your position on Israel and how you differentiate criticism of Israel and even Zionism from anti-Semitism and how those two things run together. Okay. So first, let's talk about sort of my baseline, which is as a Jew who is deeply aware of what Jewish powerlessness means, most recently with the Holocaust, but really dig into any century, any place before that. And it's a similarly horrible picture. I feel immensely grateful to be alive during the Jewish return to power. And that's a hard thing to say in our era where power is something that's regarded as immoral and profane. But I think that the people who try and pretend that Jewish powerlessness and Jewish protection ever coexisted are are revising history in a really, really dramatic way. Mm. So that is sort of my baseline position that power with all of the horrible moral quandaries that it entails is is better than powerlessness for the Jewish people. That said... Certainly, let me just kind of sign off on these items as, as you bring them over. So yeah, I totally agree with that. And we mentioned the SS St. Louis. So you have Jews fleeing the death camps of Europe, and you have them being denied entry and, you know, effectively denied survival in many cases by the rest of the world, that's an argument for the state of Israel. Even though I'm allergic to the idea of a state being organized around a religious identity mm-hmm. on the basis of, you know, real estate claims made in a book imagined to have been dictated or inspired by the creator of the universe. And in a perfect world, I would want to see no states organized around that kind of identity politics. If ever there were a justification for one state being organized in this way, 
it's for the state of Israel. I mean, the, the Jews have been the object of murderous hatred for literally millennia and have been run out of every country that has been a country, practically, that had Jews in them for, you know, over the centuries. So I think Israel should be the last state of identity politics left standing if we manage to unwind that principle at some point in the future. Yeah. I mean, just to, to like riff on that for a minute, I've thought about this a lot. And, you know, I don't think I have a commitment in any way to Israel being a Jewish state per se, but in order for it not to be that, we would need to see just an absolutely revolutionary sea change take place in the neighborhood where it is situated. Mm. Because it's not even just the Jewish experience. It's like, look at any other minority in the Middle East without the protection of an army. Look at the Yazidis, the Zoroastrians, the Christians of the Middle East, a story we never talk mm. about. But they're being literally driven from their cradle of civilization. Like there will not be Christians in the Middle East a decade from now. Yeah. Let's li linger there for one second, because that is, that's genuinely mysterious to me that the decimation of Christians and the, you know, the ethnic cleansing of Christians you know, throughout the Muslim world, how is that not a bigger story among Christians in the West? I think among, certainly among evangelical communities, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. It just never shows up in, in the New York Times or any real mainstream paper. I will say that Emma Green, who's a really fair and excellent reporter, did a long story about it recently in The Atlantic for people that are curious. It was moving. So you have to have sort of such a parochial view of the world to outsource our domestic political realities on conflicts and places thousands of miles away. And yet that seems to me exactly mm. what happens. People talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as if it's like, as if it's akin to something like American racism in which Palestinians are Black Americans and Israelis are white Americans. This just right. bears no relationship to reality at all. Yeah, yeah. And it's an apartheid state. Here's the moral asymmetry that for me cuts through all the leftist and Islamist bullshit about Israel and the Palestinians and about Jews and the Muslim world generally. It's a simple question. You just have to ask yourself, what would each side do if it had the power to do whatever it wants, right? And we know what Israel would do because it does have the power to do more or less whatever it wants. It certainly has the power to kill everyone in Gaza and the West Bank tomorrow. This is something they could do any day they decided to do it. And rather than do that, what we see is that Israel takes significant pains not to kill civilians when it responds to Hamas's rocket attacks. And of course, it winds up killing civilians because Hamas uses its population as human shields, right? And, you know, in, in any war, there's, there's, there are going to be civilians killed. But that's clearly not what the Israeli defense forces are intending to do. And, the, and we know that Israel pays just a, an extraordinary price in world condemnation when, when they do wind up killing kids and other non-combatants. And we also know this price is disproportionate to that paid by any other country in the same circumstances. I mean, the, the U.S. doesn't pay a similar price, nor do any of our allies. And conversely, we know that Hamas targets civilians. And even more important than that, we know that the 
discourse about Jews in the Muslim world and in the Hadith for the last thousand years is explicitly genocidal, right? I mean, the, the charter of Hamas is explicitly genocidal. And we've already had a Holocaust. We've already had several other genocides in the 20th century. So we know that people are capable of trying to exterminate a whole race of men, women, and children. We, we know that genocide is a thing. And we know that they're capable of doing it even when they have to make major and seemingly irrational sacrifices to do it. I and mean, when, it, when it really doesn't serve their interests, as it didn't serve the interests of the Third Reich. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it made no sense for the Third Reich to waste that much energy trying to kill every last Jew in Europe when they were fighting a, a multi-front war. And so when people tell us, literally tell us ad nauseum, and more importantly, when they tell themselves ad nauseum, when, when they think no one is listening, that they intend to murder a whole people, we should believe them, right? I mean, it's, it, it's insane not to believe them. It's, yes, this is the thing that I think about all the time, which is either ideas matter and we believe people when they tell us who they are and what they want, or they don't. But some people want to tell me or want to tell us that when a white supremacist says he wants to kill Hispanics and Muslims and immigrants and Jews, that we take seriously as well we should. And yet somehow when the jihadist says it or when the Hamas charter says it or when the ayatollahs who run the Islamic Republic of Iran say it, somehow that's waved off as political grievance and not intent to cause tremendous violence or genocide. Those two things are not compatible. Either you believe people when they say what they want or you don't. Yeah. I think we should have a brief sidebar conversation on this topic because I think that there's one other strand here which which I find genuinely confusing and I, I still don't know how to differentiate this from what we're now talking about. But there there does seem to be a species of assertion you know, and even, you know, the writing of manifestos in, in the white supremacist space, which seems like it's it's not as straightforward as that. I mean, you have this emergence of troll culture on 4chan and 8chan, and you have these, you know, incel lunatics who are circulating what are taken at face value as white supremacist memes. They'll circulate Holocaust images or, you know, lynching images. And they seem to, and they're, they're trying to try and dress it up as irony or a joke. Yeah, well, yeah. But in many cases, it really is just a kind of a derangement or the most extreme expression of troll culture or shit posting. Or, I mean, they're just trying to get a rise out of the normies. It's genuinely hard to see where th that stops and real, in this case, white supremacist ideology begins. And there may be some Muslim variant of this. I don't know. I mean, there may be people who were categorized as aspiring ISIS followers, but who are really just in this land of, you know, nihilism. And it's just like the emergence of Thanatos on the internet, where you have people who are not sincere about anything except they just want to see it all burn. And yet they're trading in the memes of ideological racism or ideological anti-Semitism. And I think it's genuinely confusing when you try to analyze it in the aftermath of a school shooting or 
a synagogue attack or Christchurch or any of these other but episodes. Isn't that, aren't those cases the ones that are actually clear? Like when the Christchurch gunman says, you know, spends tons of time on social media posting these ironic memes and then says, you know, I think he said literally it's time to make a real life effort post. And then he goes out and murders 52 people. Isn't it hmm. then clear that the irony is dressing up what is actually just the same disgusting hate? Yeah, well, well, in that case, it might be clear, but in, in some other cases, it might not. I think it was in the case of Christchurch, he said something like he was radicalized by Candace Owens, right? So that on some right. level, these are not sincere statements of propaganda. I mean, there's a kind of... I get, I get what you're saying. It is, yeah. you know, we're, we're kind of living in, in, in the Batman universe. And there is just the fact that there, there's some number of people who just want to become famous and to commit suicide by cop like a school shooting, there's the typology of the of the kind of person who would who just goes to their school to kill their classmates, and they may even I mean like the, in the case of Columbine, you had Eric Harris, you know, one of the Columbine killers, who in his journal, I think there was a, a lot of white supremacist stuff in his journal, but this was not an intelligible act of white supremacy. This is it's just the murder of children, right, by somebody who was deeply disturbed, and yet. If we'd spent a lot of time analyzing his journal, I think it would be possible to try to connect the dots in a in a white supremacist vein. And and it's just, uh, I, I mean, perhaps there's not much to read into this, but I do think that there there are cases where the straightforward reading of here's more hate and its consequences doesn't run through in quite the same way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess I'll I guess I'll just say like when I see my face on many of these white supremacist forums and there is, you know, a Pepe the Frog on me or, a, you know, a, the most recent one I saw was, you know, the yellow star that the Nazis used to mark the Jews on my forehead. Yeah, maybe the person who put that up intended it as an ironic joke, but I'm certainly not seeing it that way. I'm seeing it as a threat. Yeah. So that's what I'd say is like, I don't know. And there are experts, I'm sure there are many experts in many books that are coming out about this. My feeling is like err on the side of treating the irony deadly seriously. It's obviously a different, like I acknowledge though what you're saying though, which is it it's a different beast and it's not as coherent maybe as jihadist ideology. It's different in the sense that, it, and it does kind of link up with the Trump phenomenon for me. It's just like, you know, like Trump is somebody who is impressively lacking in ideology. Right. I mean, he's just chaos. I mean, he's like, it's like the chaos of narcissism and selfishness and ignorance. A personality cult has formed around him. And I mean, to some degree, it's the, you know, it's, it's gaining energy from the opportunism and cowardice of normal Republicans who do have an ideology. But there is a, just a spirit of, you know, for lack of a better word, you know, trolling that is animating this. Like, it's just like, let's just, let's just own the libtards. That's the goal. Like, as long as Trump is making someone like me tear his hair out, well, then that's all that needs to be accomplished. There's nothing, there's no more, there are no more ideas behind this. Trump could change all of his policy commitments insofar as he has any tomorrow, and he wouldn't lose his support, right? He could you just- No, that's true. I'm thinking about the idea that, you know, a lot of these people basically imagine themselves like Heath Ledger mm. and the Joker. But Heath Ledger and the Joker still kills a ton of people. Right. And like, you know, the I've read the manifesto of the the killer in Poway. And 
in a certain sense, it's, you know, a mishmash poo-poo platter of anti-Semitism. You know, was he, sounds like he came from a family, you know, reading reading what his parents said after the attack was just heartbreaking. Like, we don't know where our child got these ideas. You know, did it start off ironic and become real? I don't know. I don't really care when I'm sitting with the daughter of Lori Gilbert Kay, who was murdered there. You know, it, it's it's I guess it's not as interesting to me. Yeah, well, I, I guess it, it just has to be if it's yet another variable, uh, we have to understand it. I mean, so obviously yeah. ideas have consequences and what we're we're taking ideas seriously here in this case, anti-Semitic ideas. But, you know, racist ideology has consequences and, yeah, you know, any, any other form of tribalistic intolerance has consequences when it's, you know, sincerely expressed and sincerely believed. And I, I just I just worry that there is another thing going on, which is, you know, nihilistic, burn it all down chaos that is, in some cases, proving itself to be indistinguishable from sincerely held beliefs, right? And that's, mm-hmm. you know, and I, again, I'm, I'm just expressing my confusion more than anything else here. So back, back to Israel and her enemies. Yes. So this is the problem. Israel is in a very dangerous neighborhood. And I think the aspirations of the, the Arab states who attacked Israel in, in 48 were probably genocidal. They were. They were annihilationist. Yeah. So it's like, what, what would have happened had Israel lost? It would not have been the mirror image of what happens when Israel wins, right? And yet the left can't seem to do that moral arithmetic anymore, if it ever could. And so Israel is criticized. Israel has been described as the the Jew among nations. I don't know who came up with that analogy, but it does seem apt. Israel, you know, for all her flaws, and she certainly has flaws, Israel is held to a different standard at the UN and in any other place where people are trying to weigh the actions of these countries in the balance. What's your view of Israel's PR problem now? And by the way, it's it's hilariously unwinnable. I mean, when you try and make the point, the simple point that if I want to walk around in the Middle East right now wearing a tank top and shorts, there's one place where I can do that. And then you make that very basic point, which is like, where would you want to live as a liberal in the Middle East right now? There's like not even a question, right? You can, you can even sharpen it up. Where would you want to live as a liberal Muslim in the Middle East right now? Exactly. And yet you, you make that point and you're accused of pinkwashing, right? The idea that like you're racing, you're using, you know, Israel's great record on gay rights and women's rights and, you know, socialized medicine and all the rest in order to sort of whitewash its original sin, which is, in my view, existing at all, is what they really have a problem with. Well, Barry, I know your time is running short. I just wish you the best of luck with this book, and thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Sam.